0: Well, I hope we are all sitting comfortably, though it doesn't look like it. <laughs> um, and I hope you can all hear. Yes. There's been some changes in this centre since I left in 2008. One is this curious habit of applauding people before they talk. You know? I do that. <laughs> Which is uh, risky. <laughs> we, we used just to applaud at the end, and sometimes we didn't do that. Anyway, here we go, I've agreed to talk on, on, I've given the title Colombia, Peace and History. Um, When I sat down thinking about what to say, because you're all no doubt aware that we have now, uh, peace talks have been going on in Havana for the last couple of years, and um, this is a topic of some actuality. I'm not going to talk very much about peace negotiations in Havana, nor am I going to talk about transitional justice, nor am I going to talk about uh, what's going to happen... Well, I'm going to speculate a bit about what's going to happen next, but when I sat down and thought, well, what do I actually want to say, I uh, jotted down about sort of 20 pages of notes of things that I would like to say, then I realised I haven't got time to say all that and I should, should restrict myself so I'm going to restrict myself to some things which strike me about this conflict and its prospects from the point of view of a historian we just had a, in Havana a commission de historia the Colombian government and the FARC got together and the government somewhat reluctantly agreed that there would be a Concierne d'Historia which would examine the history of this conflict. Um, at, at one point, my name was mentioned as a possible member, but thank God, even though my vanity may have been slightly brief, my name was dropped. And I asked myself, well, would I have been a helper? And I think probably not, because this wasn't actually an exercise in the sort of disinterested search for historical truth. The fact had to have, if you like, their place in history and their historical message, and you know, one can understand why. Um, I thought the beginning was a somewhat risky operation, intellectually, but it isn't really an intellectual operation, so one shouldn't worry too much about that. Um, why was it intellectually risky? Because uh, Partly because the commission contained hardly any historians, and even though historians may be on the thick side they do have some experience in historical argument and in historical, uh, well, you know, in history. Um, it, it's not the same with anthropologists, it's not the same with sociologists, it's not the same with, with uh, a lot of people. Um, but no, no, one shouldn't worry too much about that. What happened? Either side, both sides, picked their teams. The FARC picked a team which produced rather predictably Um, sort of version of things Um, (laughs) uh, the other side produced some again some useful things some less useful things the general intellectual quality overall was not very striking but then they only had two months to do it and of course all conflicts are complicated and the Colombian conflict is extremely complicated and um, one shouldn't be surprised that the academic results was perhaps somewhat thin. Some of them were better than others, but anyway, it's not for me to go around awarding marks. I've been inspired when studying, when, or experiencing, because so I first went to Colombo 50 years ago, before the FARC existed, and the FARC came into being, perhaps as first year and so, that I was there. That's a long time ago, 1963, 64. Um, what's inspired me was a book uh, by John White called Interpreting Northern Ireland, an excellent book published by OUP. Uh, now I'm afraid out of print. But what John White did was to take all the, the very simple, original, but important idea, was to take all the explanations written by academics about the Northern Ireland conflict. That is, the the people who are interested in it, if you like, the sort of historical religious interpretation, the geographical interpretation, the economic interpretation, the Marxist, the this, the that, and the other. And to analyze, faced with the Northern Ireland conflict, how far could you get with each of these styles of explanation? And his summing up was that, um, with most of them you could get some way, but then you came to a point where this sort of style of explanation didn't function and he came to remarkably modest conclusions for an academic one was that no one was ever going to reach a completely satisfactory explanation of the Northern Ireland conflict because you necessarily you simplify and if you simplify you distort and it's just human conflict is so complicated that you're not going to get the 100% so forget it, first lesson Second lesson he did, more unusual speculation, was he asked himself, uh, how much has all this academic research actually served to help solve the Northern Irish conflict? And he came to the conclusion that sometimes he thought it had done damn all, that it hadn't made any difference. And he gave a number of reasons why. One was another elementary one, which is that nobody reads this research or very few people. And consequently, life goes on without it nobody's, I think very few Colombians <coughs> are going to read the 809 pages of, produced so far by the Commission de Storia. people have better things to do anyway, people, as some of the journalists said, it's very predictable what the FARC have said, and it's fairly predictable what the others have said, because they've all said it before, and so you know, they produce their carreta and on we go, <coughs> but anyway um, peacemaking isn't about Really winning arguments. In fact, peace making I think has quite a lot to do with not winning arguments, and uh, yeah. and especially perhaps arguments about the past. Egeland, uh, uh, Jan Egeland, who was a Norwegian, I think, peacemaker in terms in Colombia ten, twenty, ten, fifteen years ago, uh, it was one of the architects of the Oslo agreements, which, for a time. Did something for the relations between Palestine and Israel. Uh, one of the rules that Egeland made was: don't talk about the past. Nobody talks about the past. This is about ending conflict and about the future. I'm somewhat forgotten, but uh, inevitable that explorations of the past enter into this. These Havana talks partly is because of what I said earlier. Well, of the FARC, if they're a invited as they are to participate in politics, have in a sense got to have their version of history as part of the scene. You can't say, no, no, you can we'll make peace, and you can't have, if you like, your slice of the history of the country. And the FARC are a very historically conscious guerrilla. One of their characteristics is that, you know, the message is in the Persistence. This is a guerrilla that's been going for 50 years. Damn it, we must have our part in the history of the country. We must have our part. People must recognize that this in itself is an achievement. This must have a meaning, etc, etc. Anyway, um, I've over the years collected up large numbers of bizarre explanations for why Colombia is a conflictive and sometimes violent country some of the explanations one comes across are truly bizarre and just to amuse you I will mention a few I've come across as one explanation was that the Colombians consume too much sugar. They have a very high <laughs> sugar content in the diet and this produces you know, an extraordinary degree of aggression. This was sophisticated by another person who said the trouble is, no, it's actually beans grown on volcanic soil. <laughs> the, the fricolates which produce this. Another person actually came out with an explanation relating to the prevalence of tropical, amine, uh, 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 tropical anemia, which he said produced a certain... Particular psychology where lassitude tended to be alternate with moods of extreme rage. Anyway, you know, you can you can go on and on. There are genetic explanations. You know, the Pijares who were in Talima, which used to be a very fierce part of Colombia. The Pijares were a fierce, lot of Indians, etc., etc. Anyway, that's beside That's just to to amuse. But um, I did feel a certain amount of obligation to comment on you know, how these things look to historian, and some of the things that strike me are, I think, I hope well, we're going to have time for discussion um, controversial because <coughs> there's quite a lot of what's in the air which I frankly don't buy myself um, but as I say making peace, which I'm all in favour of is not about winning arguments um, <coughs> no I should, I think, give you a brief outline for those who are unfamiliar with the country. Um, It's it's a very brief sort of sketch of its history. History, I believe in still, economists, some economists are even beginning to discover history of the institutional school, they refer to it as path dependence. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the new name (laughs) of history? Political scientists who we've listened to in the last three sessions, Um, some of them beginning to have a sort of feeling that perhaps it would be a good thing to explore the history of the countries they're so busy labelling and well, yes, labelling and quantifying. Anyway, here it goes. Colombia is a very large country. It's the third or fourth largest in territory. And it's the third country in population in Latin America. It now has a population of something like forty, getting on to forty-eight million. Um, it's the third largest economy, having overtaken Argentina. Um, that doesn't mean that the Colombians are richer or wiser or more sophisticated than the Argentines. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a new democracy. We had, you know, something the other day was going on about new democracy. It isn't a new democracy. It's a very old democracy. It's an older democracy than quite a number of countries in Europe. It's an older democracy, one could argue, than Italy. It's an older older democracy than Germany. It's an older democracy, one could argue, than Spain or Greece. But perhaps the competition there is not all that keen, but I don't think it's, this is not a trivial point. Because um, I think that, that the age of this, these countries with very long traditions, which weigh on their politics, you cannot understand, for example, the sectarian fighting in Colombia in the 1940s and 50s without a knowledge of the country's previous history. And you can go on, you cannot ent- uh, either understand why the conflicts in Colombia uh, have persisted after, say, 1960 without that background as part of the explanation. And the only way to, it, 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 to look at that is to, to, uh, to recognise, if you like, the depth of the country's political traditions. And they're very different from the political <coughs> traditions of Colombia's neighbours. Those who are going for the history of independence will know that Colombia formed part of what was known as Gran Colombia, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, all joined together, fragments in 1830. Um, 1830 is a long time ago. Um, how many years ago? Well, it is a long time ago, but it's getting on to 200 years ago. And in that time, for example, the political traditions evolved in Venezuela, are very, very different from. Uh, the Venezuelan politics and Colombian politics have really very little in common ditto Ecuador etc and one can go on but I don't need to labour the point um, but this doesn't mean to me I have a certain resistance to sort of, uh, this the, the the, the sort of saying oh well this is a new democracy well it's, it's, it's of course imperfect like most democracies it has lots of undemocratic features but um, it's so new, as I say, there are very few perfect democracies outside Scandinavia, and um, more of that among um, It didn't also fit like Colombia in the so-called transition to democracy, which so many of the countries of South America uh, experienced uh, after the cycle of authoritarian rule in the 1960s and 70s. Um, The reasons for all this aren't anything to do with the civic virtues or the supposed civic virtues of Colombians. Um, The the fact was that the only way in which Colombia could be governed from 1830 onwards, if you like, was by some sort of um, combination of uh, civilian uh, notables and elections and that sort of thing. Colombia did not have the resources to produce authoritarian governments, and the geography of the country did not favor authoritarian governments. So there were very few, if any, authoritarian governments. Whether you like it or not, that's the way the historical record, of the historical record shows. I also don't feel myself that there is anything particularly oligarchic about the Colombian democracy. Some people say some people respectable intellectuals have recently argued that the trouble with Colombo is it's never had a populist phase. You know well one thinks my God and thank God for that. If you look at countries that have had a populist phase I don't think the results are all that encouraging. Look at Venezuela, look at Argentina Um, and there are reasons why Colombo has not had a populist phase which partly I think relate to the vigour of its political life. Colombia is a country which is always full of politicians. It's full of lawyers as well. But this means that there is that it doesn't produce the sort of vacuum or near vacuum into which populist experiences tend to come. Anyway, you can argue, we can argue about that later. But there are profound reasons why Colombo is, if you like, an, an, an imperfect democracy. And you did this, this it's, it's, it's all, um, yeah. When one looks back at the conflict, the history of conflict in Colombia, quite a lot, certainly of the 19th century conflict and quite a lot of the 20th century conflict, is about minorities. Um, elections which, in which winner takes all, in which the losing side is excluded, had a lot to do with 19th century conflict. You have a very long electoral history in this country and pretty regular. But the elections tended to be won by the government. And those who lost the elections tended to get short end stick. Um, minority rights were to some degree established after the last formal civil war, which ended in 1901, when the winning conservatives did eventually recognise that it was best for a quiet life to give the liberals something like a third of the cake. And that did produce 40, 50 years of comparative peace. Um, to give you an idea again of the sophistication, if you like, of this poor but honest or vigorous democracy, in 1886 a remarkable right book was published by a man called Rafael Rocha Gutierrez we called La Verdadera y la falsa democracia. In a book, Roger Gutierrez was arguing against the new centralist conservative government of Rafael Núñez, 1886. Roger Gutierrez said, look, Núñez and his friends, friends and allies, Miguel Antonio Caro and others, were saying, the trouble with this country is we need to centralize government. We've had this federal experience, which is chaotic. We don't want to go back to that. We want strong central government. And Roger Gutierrez said, "No, no. This isn't what's going to produce peace. Peace is produced by the recognition of minority rights. You can exclude minority rights under a centralized system, or you can exclude minority rights under a federal system. But if you do that, you're eventually going to get uh, you're going to get some sort of." Violent revolution, it's not going to work. That what you have to do is recognize the rights of, majority, of, of minorities. It's a weird, very interesting book. It shows that in the state of Tolima in, in Colombia, around in the 1870s, 80s, early 80s, they had actually experimented with a proportional representation of a sophisticated sort of neo Belgian sort. It did actually happen. This is a country, again, where, as Eduardo has no doubt told you, a lot of elections have gone on through its history and with a very, if you like, very high degree of participation. It's partly, that's partly a matter of the ethnic composition of the country. There's no barrier in Colombia. There's, there's never been an ethnic barrier to political participation. Colombia, simplifying away as one has to in these things, is a very mestizo country in which it's very difficult to say, okay, you know, that lot are out. If you compare this, for example, to Ecuador, Colombian civil wars, everybody gets dragged in. Ecuadorian civil wars, Indians don't fight. Indians don't participate. Civil wars, incidentally, do differ a lot from one republic to another in the 19th century they I'm not go back to that the country did uh, eventually after the old minority rights of giving the liberals so much of the Cape after 1901 that broke down in the 1930s and 40s once again when they returned to a system of winner takes all um, this was fatal when the minority conservative government was elected in 1946 which tried to impose itself on the country and the result of that was very severe sectarian fighting. About politics, about power. It wasn't about other things, it was about power. And it was very expensive. And after that, after a very short military government, not very oppressive, it was agreed that there would be a 50-50 split between the traditional parties of Colombia, the Liberals and the Conservatives, 50-50, representation in Congress, 50-50 representation throughout the bureaucracy. Um, that was the only way in which peace could be reached at that time. People say, oh dear, oh dear, after all that fighting, couldn't they have had some more minority representation? The answer is no, it had to be 50-50, um, anything else wouldn't have, wouldn't have stuck. And it was also the case when those of you are interested in things like memory and truth commissions and all that which are so much in vogue um, it was I think sort of fairly prudently decided that not too much investigation would go on about what had happened between 1946 and the end of the 1950s because there was no agreement about who should do the investigating and it was held to be much better in terms of making peace, not to rake over old scores at that time um, right, I've experienced personally <coughs> 50 years of this country and I'm going to just rattle through a number of things before going, on to, before going on to not exceed my time and to discuss four aspects of the current scene which I've chosen from the many in which unfortunately I won't have time to touch. Lucky for you, because one could go on for hours and hours. I've known 15 presidents. they have been quite a lot of them quite different. The idea that Colombian governments are uniform in their policies and in their nature, not, to my mind, the case. This is a country also which, I've, when I first knew it, was very rural, and which is urbanized at a terrific rate, and which is now, according to the conventional balance of things, predominantly urban. It's much more prosperous, it used to be, may not be more equal, but it's certainly more prosperous. It's full of motorcycles and mobile phones and all that sort of thing. And a sort of mass consumerism is now present, which was certainly not there 50 years ago. It's become much more feminist. Anyone's interested in that? Talk about that later. Um, it's become much more middle class the middle class has expanded and it's a completely different middle class very different in its nature from what it was 50 years ago it's become more educated it's become more secular it's become much less isolated it's become much more consciously multiracial and its economy has diversified in various ways and it's it's not the same as the old coffee economy which I first knew. Um, it's not, as I said, any more equal. Um, it's not any less corrupt. It's a great deal more corrupt than it was 50 years ago. Partly because it's richer and also because of the vast impact, great impact on Colombo from drugs, which I'm not going to talk about very much, but which you all know by anyway. Um, it's not come consistently less violent. After the violence of the 1940s and 50s, which was, as I say, a sectarian struggle between liberals and conservatives, these loyalties going down very deep in Colombian society. If you want an analogy near home, it's rather like Northern Ireland in that respect. Northern Ireland, unionists are unionists, and republicans are republicans, and that they don't get on very well, as you all know, and, but they're not deferential parties. I remember that uh, you know when you had Lord O'Neill and Mr. Chichester Clark at the beginning of the Troubles, it was quite clear that the leaders were not really leaders. It was uh, they had to follow what the party felt. And that famous joke of the French of Ledru um, in the Revolution of 1848, looking out the window and seeing the street full of people. And uh, said it. he said, Je suis le chef, il faut que je les suive. I am their chief, I have to follow them, he said. That's going to be funny. I'm so, I still don't understand <laughs> you know, Leaders are not meant to follow, they're meant to. <coughs> right. <laughs> um, common parties were very like that. Uh, that is, they were not dominated by an elite which could uh, tell everybody what to do and all that. Not Not. Not really like that. Right, well, I must get on to the gorillas. Um, <clears throat> persistent conflict, you're all aware. That you know, if you read the papers, you would see people saying, "You know, oh, poor Colombia, fifty years of civil war, fifty years of conflict, fifty years of you know nothing but an ending strife." Well, it isn't. It wasn't really like that. It hasn't really been like that at all. Uh, first of all, for, and from uh, in the 1960s and 70s, were really comparatively peaceful. Uh, the the, the, the level of violence by the mid 70s had gone down a great deal, it subsequently came up again, that's one aspect of it, secondly the violence is really quite localised if you were an urban Colombian you could the country certainly had a high murder rate which is not uh, unrelated to the existence of the armed conflict but you could live in, in most part you know, urban Colombians, as it was very little affected, really, by the violence of the 1940s and 50s. It has been comparatively little affected since then. I say comparatively because, you know, Escobar put bombs in various places and all that. But it, 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 the idea that you, you, know, you get from reading at a distance of sort of 50 years of civil war is somewhat exaggerated. Um, of course it persists, you can date the guerrillas back to the early 1960s the FARC, the ELN EPL, various onwards and one of the things one added to that of course from the 1980s onwards one has a, a very widespread paramilitary reaction to the presence of, and the practices of guerrillas and yeah okay and one of the questions which one the commission was asked to address is why has this been so persistent? Why is it that you know that peace didn't come to Colombia for when the old sectarian fighting ended? And I'm going to try and address that because you know it is, it, it is not such an easy question to answer. You look at Colombia's neighbors, Venezuela, and Ecuador, there's no guerrilla experience worth talking about in those countries. There was some sporadic guerrilla activity in Venezuela. But there was a guerrilla in Ecuador, which was very soon discovered because they played the music too loud on a portable music centre. They lasted a very short time. Not, not, not serious. Not serious. Um, you yeah. know, um, I've already I'm going to skip the next bit which was my sort of criticisms of the of the of the result of the commission, what the commission said about the well, commission was asked about the causes the persistence and the results well the results have been in human terms very costly um, the, 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 the usual sanctified statistic if you like of of the conflict since nineteen early 60s and something like 200,000 dead and several million desplazados. And if you can imagine a great deal of human suffering with this caused, um, That's one thing. The persistence, um, yeah, it, it, I can give you a, a quick sample of what some members of the Commission said. Um, on the FARC side you had of course a great many people going on about the objective uh, inequalities and conditions of Colombians. you had one person going on saying it was all the fault of the United States you had another person, a Jesuit saying that the sacred right of rebellion is something that every true Catholic should recognise you had another chap saying that this was an inevitable product of capitalism and it's virulent, globalized form, etc. Well, you, you know, fairly predictable stuff. One also, another person came on saying that this was strictly related to the uh, agrarian conditions of the country. Um, so the FARC gets its version. And as I said, always a very historical guerrilla, and if it is going to participate in public life, it has a right, if you like, to its own historical version. I don't think that these, this, this effort of the commission is in, in that sense unnecessary. But as I say, when you look at it as an academic and an intellectual, one is not very convinced by most of the stuff produced. Um, in fact, had to have its version. It's invited, I've said all that anyway. Um, and of course, looking at the current scene, one should remember the FARC hasn't altogether given up. The FARC, in a nutshell, uh, uh, I think now recognize that they are not going to, and, and no, there's now no chance of them taking power through uh, force of arms. But they do not consider themselves to be vencedous. They have, you know, after all, there's still seven, 8,000 of them, I don't know, something like that. They still, and they may not be in very good military shape and of course one of the reasons why they are talking in Havana is because under President Uribe they certainly suffered a a good deal militarily and were thrust back from the centre of the country to the periphery etc etc and a lot of their leaders were killed. That's in itself significant because nobody joined FARC to die. The suffering and dying is not part, if you like, of the rhetoric of the FARC. Other people suffer and other people die, but we go on forever. And the fact that a number of their leaders did not go on forever is one of the reasons One of the reasons why they're in Havana. Um, yeah. Uh, the FARC... It, 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 yes, it's just... Uh, um, what do the FARC want? And here again, as I say, once you you, you realize that they still exist and they still have plans, although, curiously, very few people seem to be very interested in what the plans of the FARC are. The FARC's aim was power, essentially. If you look (coughs) at the programs of the FARC, you will find really very little. There is a sort of 10-point program if you're Really pedantic, you can find it, and it's probably on some website because practically everything is now on some website. Okay. But that doesn't mean that the program of the FARC was a very important element in its in its composition. Um, <coughs> the reason of that is again structural. The aim of the, the FARC discovered that the answer to the question of authority and aim was to say we the FARC are the armed. Uh, Braso armado of the Pueblo we are the armed um, no, yes, it doesn't sound right in we are the uh, physical force of the Pueblo we, when we take part the Pueblo will decide what the new Colombo should be it is not for us to write the program now that actually is very convenient for a guerrilla because uh, what guerrillas aren't guerrillas aren't debating societies Guerrillas are vertical militarist organizations and the authority comes from top down and argument and discussion plays a very very little part in guerrilla existence. When the FARC produced a program, they did actually, at the time of the Kaiwan chaotic peace talks of uh, 18, uh, 1998 programs, the FARC did once produce an economic plan. And even the left-wing intellectuals in the National University said this is all rubbish. This is just, a, you know, high road to poverty. The FARC don't know what they're talking about, etc. So the FARC, the plan is very quickly sort of suppressed. Um, that's, I think, it's structural. And some of the things I'm going to say, I hope I have time to say, are about the, what it's. I think one can't understand the conflict and its persistence without trying to get inside, if you like, the mentality of the leadership of the FARC, how they see themselves and how they explain to us to themselves. Now, I'm going now to go on to history of the conflict's causes and persistence. Now, I cannot possibly, in the short space left to me, say nearly as much as I'm afraid I would like to say, because I promised Edward <coughs> that after an hour I'm going to stop. Mind you, an hour only starts at four minutes past the hour because <laughs> of <so> introduction. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to talk about four things. I've restricted myself to talking about four things. I'm going to talk about the international context of this conflict. And I'm going to talk about the military side of this conflict and the geopolitics of the country to a certain extent. You know, and I'm going to talk about the degree to which this is or isn't an agrarian conflict and I'm going to talk about how some characteristics of the guerrilla insurgency contribute to its persistence right um, I all of these themes enough, are not much emphasised in Colombian discussions of the conflict Colombians don't like talking very much about the international context believe it or not I have a number of left wing friends we'll have to take that on trust <laughs> um, they uh, you know when one says you know, start, start off with the, the international context um, it, 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 Colombians I think tend to, or certain Colombian intellectuals anyway, tend to like to see their conflict as very essentially Colombian, that this is all generated within our borders, that this is authentically Colombian, that, you, you know, forget about the rest of the world, we are, we are Colombian. Um, but I ask the question, would there have been a revolutionary guerrilla in Colombia in the early 1960s without the example of the Cuban Revolution? And my own inclination is to say there wouldn't have been and to recall the enormous aspect, impact that the, Klo- the Cuban Revolution did have in South America at that time. You know, this was the time of the glorious entry of Fidel Castro, Navarra, Chega, Vara, Pranz Garan, uh, you know, Barbudos, Tri Continental, etc., etc. A hell of a lot of people thought that the Andes were going to become the Sierra Maestra of South America. And hell of a lot of people that don't sympathize with Che Guevara's desire to create not one, not two, but you know, I can't remember how many Vietnams. And lo and behold, there we had Colombia, Cuba there, and uh, it became necessary, if you like, for a, a party that aspired to be a vanguard left-wing party to have a guerrilla. If you haven't got a guerrilla, you weren't in the fashion you know, something was left. And that one head in Colombia, the Colombian Communist Party, Moscow line, a very conservative and, frankly, herbivorous party, which was not, you know, very close to the liberals, very keen on working with the syndicatos, very keen on, on uh, you, you know, on, if you like, politics. And suddenly the Colombian Communist Party is faced with the necessity of maintaining its vanguard position on the left. Quite a lot of the persistence, actually, you can analyze in terms of left-wing rivalries. You know, the rivalry between the UN and the, and the FARC and the UPL and all that is part of, you know, we can't let the other chaps take the headlines. We can't let them get ahead. But anyway, going back to this question, my own feeling is that without the Cuban Revolution, um, the uh, Colombian violence of the 60s the 50s, which was still... The traces were left in the early sixties. Would I think have faded away? There would have been a certain sporadic banditry, which I think would have faded out in the mid nineteen sixties. Successively, there have been other shots in the arm, international shots in the arm, if you like, given to the Colombian Um One had after know, after the Cubans, one has other stimulus one had the Tupamaros and the Montaneros Uh, Tupamaros very much in the the, obviously model of the M19 one then had the Central American conflicts which again lots of my left wing Colombian friends said look you know the way history is now going our way again look at the Sandinistas look at the FMN you know we're once again we're in the game and this matters to, to, to people. And after that, recently, we had a friendly Mr. Hugo Chavez on the border. Um, some people, not very many, may have read the, uh, the uh, captured uh, emails of Raoul Reyes, um, which were published and which nobody reads because on the whole people don't read as John White said the number of people who read things is very small but if you want to look and see what the impact of Chavismo was on certain aspects of FARC thinking there is this friendly government there is this socialist government at times Chavez was very openly pro and of course the existence of Chavista government in Venezuela was a great physical practical, material assistance to the FARC because you skipped across the border and across the border you had rest, recreation, drug trafficking, arms purchase, Um, very, very important. It's, uh, you know, that border was made, if you like, at certain times there must have been, uh, you know, hundreds, perhaps thousands of FARC persons happily resting and recreating in Venezuela, apart from the other things. So, you know, all that, all these outside things do help explain systems. And again, going back to this model, the ELN was obviously a Cuban, even as quite clearly a straightforward Cuban implant. The, they, they, the ELN's original leaders were trained in Cuba, you know, this was uh, this was the theory of the FOPO, This was Che Guevara. You know, and that, that was complete. And again, the Communist Party, Soviet line, Communist Party in alliance with the FARC, saying, you know, we are the senior, senior left wing element. We are unchallengeable. Our position is, you know, we are the oldest and we're the most historical. This, is of course, something the FARC still believes. And it's important too to recognise that the discipline of the FARC. Which is very impressive, you know. It is an achievement, after all, to keep on with this year after year, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, maintaining the conflict and discipline. And that discipline is quite, in large part, derived from the training of the Communist Party. They are, if you like, democratic centralists. They are, you know, they. They. they the discipline is quite formidable, and a lot of that derives from, from that. Yeah. At the same time, one has the paradox that although these outside influences existed, the Colombian guerrilla is extremely autonomous. It does not depend on outside assistance. You know, they were hoping that they would get good work from Chavez. They would, uh, you know, they they they, they, they trade arms through Ecuador, explosives through Ecuador, across Benzema and Ball, etc., etc. But they are essentially autonomous. They don't depend on outside resources. There is no outside power that can really heavily <coughs> twist the arm of the Colombian insurgency. Years and years ago, the Cubans abandoned the idea that the armed struggle was a good thing in Colombia. Fidel Castro actually wrote a book against the armed, uh, 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 saying that the time for the armed struggle in Colombia has passed. This should be wound up. This book was published in 2008, and as usual, as nobody reads books, nobody read that. But it exists. It's even in the Bodleian. If you want to go and read it, you can read it. Fidel Castro is well, not really electrifying read. It's quite interesting, because he explains in part, if I remember rightly, why the Cubans backed the Colombian guerrillas way back in the early 1960s. This is in part because the Colombian government, under Dios Camargo, was extremely close to Kennedy. And when Kennedy and Cubans fell out with the Americans, the support from Colombo was total. And so the Cubans thought, well let's give them a dose of our little medicine. So, you know, we will if they if this is the line Columbus is going to take, we're going to make them pay for it. And so assistance to ELN came from Cuba at that time. Anyway, but there you are. That's a burst of opinion on successive outside influences at the same time combined with autonomy to help explain assistance. The next thing I'm going to go on about is the military aspects of things. There's very little in the 800 pages of the Commission Historica written about the forces of order, the Colombian army, Colombian police... Um, this is also very, very much understudied by Colombian academics. Um, i give you an example. One you know, looks around, what the Colombians, what's Colombian academia produced about the armed forces, about the police? And practically nothing. There's one book, just one or two honorable exceptions and some dishonorable exceptions. One of the dishonorable exceptions is a book written by a professor at the National University on... Columbus participation in Korea where the Colombians sent a battalion to the Korean War and in his prologue the author says um, I can assure my readers that in writing this book I have not talked to a single soldier <laughs> he thought that that actually gave him the right credentials you know this all things guarantees the value of the text that he didn't talk to any, any, any soldiers when the Barker government set up a commission to inquire into violence in 1987 which is interesting because it was the first time the government had done anything like that since 1960 At the end of the violencia there was some attempt which petered out very quickly to inquire into the causes of the sectarian struggle 1987 the Barco government decided that it would be a good thing to find out why this country appeared to be getting, you know, so intractably violent and they approached the professors of the National University to inquire into all sorts of violence, not just guerrillas, but also, you know, homicide and and violence in general. The President, National University, refused to have any police representative on that commission. You no, know, no. If we're going to have policemen present, we're not going to play. It doesn't exactly show, I think, a great deal of open-mindedness. Um, and it, it, this, this, I think, on the whole persists. And I, I think it is a problem. And I think it's also a problem because it seems to me to be very unfair to the Colombian army. And now I am going to say some things about the military traditions of this country. Colombia is a very anti-militarist country. Since 1830, it has been a very anti-militarist country. You look at the first constitution of New Granada, and it's, it's, you know, Christ, we don't want an army, we don't want soldiers, we want all these foreign officers, Venezuelans and British adventurers and all these people to get out. We want to reduce the army to the smallest possible size. This was in part because they, 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 wanted, you know, they did want to get rid of this expensive and not altogether very new Grenada outfit. Um, partly also because uh, 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 anyway they start with a very very firm anti-militarist tone which persists believe it or not throughout the 19th century you have generals and you have civil wars but if you look closely the generals are mostly civilians dressed up in occasional uniforms they're not really soldiers in a professional sense and they consistently the politicians which dominate this country Colombia is dominated by politicians and lawyers uh, Bolívar, who was quite a sociologist in time to time, made a little joke where he said Caracas is a barracks, uh, Quito is a convent and Bogotá is a university. He didn't actually mean to pay Bogotá a compliment when saying that. What he meant it was full of lawyers, too many lawyers. Lawyers, always, and it still is. Um, There's is a city, some of you may know, provincial capital boycott, Tunka produces something between two and 3,000 lawyers a year. That's just one city and its universities. So, anyway, these people didn't like the army, and also the country didn't have the resources to sustain a large army. Armies are very expensive. You look at these early presuppostos, and you will see that the military part of the is, you know, takes a huge slice and so, reduce, reduce, reduce. Um, this goes on and on through the history of the country. has um, had less than 10 years of military rule in the whole of its history. Um, it has had no important international conflicts. One joke, one can make, or not joke, is why do the Colombians fight each other so much? It's because they've never fought anybody else. And this is actually significant because foreign conflicts do produce a sense of national solidarity, which sometimes is positive. Colombians had a short war with Peru in 1932, and surprise, surprise, this did actually uh, mute uh, the party conflict within the country at the time. But unfortunately, or fortunately, the war was very short and it didn't have a very lasting effect. Anyway, army kept small. This is all very well if you're Costa Rica. But the fact that the country has had such an inadequate uh, 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 such inadequate forces of order is, I think, something for which it's paid rather a high price. Um, if, you're posed, if you're faced with the sort of threats... That the FARC and the ELN eventually posed Colombia from the 1980s onwards, when they begin to grow, you can you know you can say okay before the 60s you know Che Guevara died, Camilo you know, Torres died, the whole thing appeared to be going away. Americans went to Vietnam, etc. Um, after 1980, the guerrillas begin to expand. Partly because of the drug resources, partly because they were you know, militarily very competent. They knew how to do it. They would learned also the theory of taxation. You know, you don't kill the golden you know, the goose. You just screw it, you know, it's the maximum. They're very good at that. And they begin to grow. It took a long time, I think, to recognize that a much more serious effort was required from the government to deal with this problem um, this does, it, 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 you can does you, if you look at the recent history, you only going back say to the 1970s you'll find for a long long time the Ottoman army isn't really up to the job armies that aren't up to the job I think are more likely to be abusive as well as armies that are, although that's not a hard and fast rule because the Germans were a very good army and they were not exactly Yes, well a um, <coughs> long, long time, the army is kept very subordinate. The idea that the Colombian army, for example, has had an autonomous role in public order is, is, is not, to my mind true at all. I think that often the army's role in public has been very neglected by civilian governments who haven't taken a great interest when they should have done But if you're going to deal with large, if you're going to be able to contain, bring to the peace table or whatever it is, a large guerrilla insurgency, then you actually need a good army. There's no alternative. And you need also, if you're faced with the sort of violence of Columbus, Facebook, you need a, 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 a good police. You know, the, the humanity has not invented alternatives to these sometimes blunt instruments. Colombians, I think, are very lucky in the police force they've got, which is actually one of the two police forces in Latin America which enjoy, a, let's say, a decent degree of public approval. They're very lucky to have a national police force, which is actually a historical accident. Look at Mexico. Look at Venezuela. You know, there you have fragmented police forces, which are are, are not up to the task they're faced with. Um, From the... You know, even... Yes, going on about the army. um, If you don't have a coherent official security policy then, and, uh, you know, an effective official security policy. The alternative is, in the Colombian case, paramilitarism. If you don't like what the army does, if you don't want to have an army, then you're going to get paramilitaries. because given the tactics of the guerrillas, um, people are not just going to lie down and give up. They're going to respond with various forms of vigilantism. And what paramilitaries do is perfectly logical. It's horrible but logical. You know, state cannot protest us, protect us. So what do we do? We arm ourselves. We're not going to go chasing these guerrillas around wearing rubber boots and heels. We are going to terrify the populations on which they depend. And we're going to show that the guerrillas cannot defend these populations. And, but therefore, we will respond, if you like, with massacre. Now, this is very ugly and but if, if I, I'm afraid to say that it is, if you like, on the cards <laughs> going on again I've gone, I'm running out of time shortly so i better hurry, hurry, hurry um, the geopolitics of the country again I was going to say something about and that is the degree to which very little of what's going on affects Bogota Bogota is high up The violence is down below, somewhere distant. There's even a theory that this has been the case in the country since before the conquest. When up in Bogota lived the Chibsas and the Whiskers, and you know, they weren't very bothered by the powers and all these rather more violent persons down below. Anyway, we can't go on with that. I must press on quickly. I was going to say something about the, the, the rural. Uh, to what degree is this a, a, an agrarian conflict? Well, I'm going to have to be, as I'm running out of time, very, very short. I don't think... I think that the guerrilla has been, if you like, rural. That is, most of the FARC are from the countryside, lot of the leadership. Most of the rank and the files, small town, rural Colombia. But if you ask yourself, is this an agrarian guerrilla, an agrarista guerrilla a guerrilla which arises out of rural conflict and conflict for land and that sort of thing, I think you have to take that with a large pinch of salt. Now, in Havana they agreed, the government agreed, that it would talk, one of the items on the table would be the future of rural Colombia. I think the government, in a way, had to offer the FARC something in those lines. But I don't think, if you look closely at the record of the FARC, that you will see that this is an agrarian movement. The FARC made very, very little protest in the years in which allegedly the paramilitaries and the narcos were taking over large tracts of land, etc., etc., etc. There's very few instances of the FARC, if you like, putting forward vigorously an agrarian program. But anyway, there you are. I can't go into that because I'm running out of time, and I wish to finish up with the characteristics of leadership says something about that. Um, the ways in which conflict is not commonly perceived, but which I think are important, you have to realise that it's conflict that produces for a guerrilla resources, and it is conflict which produces discipline. No conflict, no resources, no discipline. Um why is that? Um, if you look at where the FARC's resources come from, they are come from kidnapping, extortion, drugs. If you're not engaged in conflict, those are in some ways out of question, even in times of truce. If there is a truce, you can't go on kidnapping. If you can't kidnap, you, your extortion falls because kidnapping is the sanction that makes extortion Possible, etc., etc. Um, secondly, conflict maintains discipline for obvious reasons. A guerrilla is a military organisation. If there is no threat, discipline tends to become lax, and it is the authority of the leadership is maintained by conflict. And this is one of the reasons why, when you look at the far people in the photograph, or if you study from a distance, people like. Jerry Adams or Martin McGuinness, one sees that these people are really irritating because they always have to be right about everything. This is, you know, I, one looks and says, God, won't they ever admit any mistake? Won't they ever admit that they did something wrong? No, they wouldn't. Butter never melts in their mouths. I feel like they go on and on saying, no, we were always right, always right, always right. When you conquer your irritation, I think you recognize that this, again, getting structural. That they have to be like that a government can more or less admit a few mistakes a guerrilla leader cannot and a guerrilla leader also it is very very difficult for them to take an initiative towards peace if you're too quick you'll get, you, know, you will then be regarded as a traitor and your life will probably be in danger the thing has to move very slowly and again the doctrine has to be vertical um, I think this is curiously not Understood very much, not understood by people again who regard peacemaking as a time, as, as if you like, a, a, a question of winning arguments. It isn't a question of winning arguments. The only thing that Havana is trying to do is to stop the conflict. It's not trying to produce a, a totally authorized and agreed version of the past, which is impossible. You couldn't do that. And it's not trying either to remodel the whole country in some sort of, uh, you know, utopian future. It's for stopping the conflict. And in, in that case, it's not much good, it doesn't make much sense to expect the FARC leadership uh, to agree to things which it is structurally very difficult for them to agree to. They're going to have a difficult enough job adapting to politics without arms. What are they going to do? Here's my final burst and then I stop. You can see I'm on the last page. Um, why are they talking they're talking well partly because of the change since 2002 and the achievements of the Uribe government which did thrust the FARC out of if you like central Colombia to the periphery where it can engage in drugging and one thing or another but where it, it, you know, they suffered an, a, a, if you like a, a military uh, repulse of, uh, that didn't finish them off No, and Uribe, incidentally never said he was going to be able to do that but, okay, and they took a number of important losses. The um, death of leaders is important, and also, of course, they suffered a very great deal at the hands of paramilitaries, which is something which is not again usually mentioned which isn't mentioned in the case of Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, we all say, oh, it's because the security forces were so good, and the, uh, the, uh, the provost finally saw that they could make politics because they got votes after the hunger strike, etc., etc. But they were also suffering <coughs> from the unionist paramilitaries. Okay, the FARC also probably, when starting talks, don't necessarily have to know how exactly they're going to win. They think, oh, well, you know, at least we may be able to get, you know, had they made up their minds, I don't know, I'm not one of them. But there's a sort of suck it and see element, you know. Let's try and see how we go. And in some respects, they've not been doing so badly. Today, they are, for example, would have a video link with various useful idiots and of comments. You know, well, yeah. Okay, um, they do see... I think, too, that the international context is now in no ways favorable to them. As we can see, even, you know, Colombians, the idea that nobody can perceive that Venezuela is a disaster is, I think, somewhat naive. Venezuela, Chavez Chavismo, is clearly zoic. Uh, Cuba, again, is, you know, not what it was. Um, colder international climate, generally. And also a glimmering of political possibilities. The FARC, very keen, if you read the Havana declarations, very keen on protest, la protesta. That Colombia has to have a new way of dealing with la protesta. So if you ask me what, my guess, is the FARC going to try on, is they're going to try, if you like, la combinación de todas las formas de lucha, except for the armed struggle. That is, we will have paros, marches, movimientos, solidaridades, etc dignidades as they say and, you know we'll have all that um how they i think they go for what one of my friends refers to as the bolivian model referring to the way evo reached power which was through sort of mm, mm, general mobilizations of you know provincial groups co you what, what have etc et whether or not uh, how that will work out I don't know. Um, last time I spoke to President because I was very struck by the fact that Riva was not so much worried by immediate prospects of Havana, of which he's critical, but not absolutely critical. He was worried about what was going to happen in 2018, whether or not it was going to be possible that the FARC And it would organize some sort of populist wave, such as Colombo had not previously seen. That was his apprehension. Um, Predictions, Um, you know the famous baseball player prediction, very difficult, especially about the future.